Hello and welcome to the Women's Energy Council podcast, where we explore lessons and advice from some of the most senior energy executives, focusing on transformational leadership. I'm your host, Emma Shul. In this month's episode of the Women's Energy Council podcast, I had the pleasure of interviewing Oyango Snell, Senior Vice President, General Counsel and Corporate Secretary for the Western States Petroleum Association. Prior to joining the energy industry, Oyango served as Regional Legislative and Regulatory Counsel representing the Property Casualty Insurance Association of America on critical issues impacting the insurance industry. Before joining PCI, Oyango spent his professional career in state government relations in both the public and private sectors in Columbus, Ohio, which included a political bid for the Ohio State Senate. Oyango earned his law degree at the Ohio State University and holds a Master of Business Administration from Franklin University in Columbus, Ohio. Oyango's appreciation for diversity was molded from an early age. Having spent most of his formative years in an incredibly diverse household, he now describes himself as an unapologetic advocate for women and other historically marginalized groups. In many of our conversations on this podcast, we have discussed the need for allyship at the highest level to truly achieve the equity and inclusion so needed in our industry. In discussing his own learnings as a male leader, Oyango illustrates his three-pronged approach to being a good ally, providing a helpful strategy for male leaders looking to be the change in this industry and contributing to the all-important question of what can men do to help. Enjoy the episode. Welcome back, everyone, to our next episode of the Women's Energy Council podcast. Today, we have quite an exciting episode. We have our first male ally guest on the show. So I'd like to welcome Yango Snell from the Western States Petroleum Association. He is their Senior Vice President, General Counsel and Corporate Secretary. And he's here today to give us his experiences and his perspectives as a male ally in the energy industry. So welcome to the show. It's great to have you here. Thank you. Glad to be here. So to open the episode, we like to start with everyone just with your story. So who you are, your background and your career journey kind of from your education through to today? Well, you put a lot of pressure on me being the first male. There's usually not a lot (laughs) of first males these days doing anything. It's usually first female or first somebody else. It's uh, supposed to be exciting rather than pressurizing. Well, pressure either makes roadkill or diamonds. So we'll see how this turns out. (laughs) I'll start with the background. So I was born and raised in Chicago, Illinois, a Midwest uh, big urban city in the United States. And I was born on on a side of town on the south side where it was not the most economically fruitful neighborhood uh, where I grew up. In fact, my, my mother, who was a single parent trying to raise three kids, a very young mother, we found ourselves quite economically challenged. You know, my mom was a, a nightclub singer and, and a bartender and did everything she could do to keep the lights on. When she hit economic hard times, I was actually taken in by a Jewish foster family. 
Luckily for my sister and I, we didn't have to go through the system. It was a family that took us in. We went to school with their children. And in this family, this is where I actually learned about diversity before I under understood what the term diversity meant. You had a white male college student, a African-American male high school student, two biracial junior, one junior high school female and elementary school kid, a, a, a little boy who was my friend. And then you had myself and my sister, my sister who was a junior high school African-American female and myself who was an African-American boy. And then you had two other African-American boys that this Jewish white woman brought in and eventually adopted. And then you had an African-American female mother of another wow. <laughs> individual, a young female who this, uh, who this white Jewish woman adopted, all under one roof. So, so we've had a lot of diverse experiences from a background perspective growing up. Just think everybody, uh, it, this was not your typical Brady Bunch, right? This was a hodgepodge uh, of a group of people. The reason why that's important is because through that, I learned so much about different the difference in my own culture. Like not everybody's the same just because you're African-American, right? You all come from, we all come from different walks of life. And getting to learn about the Muslim experience, uh, one of the individuals practiced the Islam faith, as well as the Jewish experience, who my Jewish foster mom and her children uh, were uh, Jewish background. So having that experience under one roof was, was quite interesting, made for some fun times and challenging each other. And just having a diverse dynamic upbringing really helped shape me as I went forward in my career. I knew that I wanted to be an attorney around sixth or seventh grade. There was a library teacher in junior high school that really put some things on my mind that helped me begin to think about what I wanted to be when I grew up, that little proverbial phrase. And um, after stumbling through high school and college, like most adolescents to young adults, as far as grades and, and all those things are concerned, it was actually football and sports that got me to college. But after I got to college, I didn't look back. I mean, I really started to excel academically uh, and went on to get an MBA in Columbus, Ohio and Franklin University, and then went on to get my law degree at The Ohio State University. So that was really the, from my background to the educational journey of really starting my legal career. Now, before my legal career, I actually had a small short stint of a career in social services. And this is how I learned how to deal with people and understand people's needs. And part of that was rooted, uh, you know, growing up with my mom, my biological mom, and some of the things that I saw her do. But when I became an attorney, I worked for a major law firm in Ohio and uh, got great experience there before moving on to try my hand at politics and ran for a state senate office and lost <laughs> but it was fun sometimes then, our losses are the best learning curves yeah yeah right we learn from our failures more than we do from our successes but it was the, after that campaign and after that race i really had some thinking and some reflecting as to you know what i wanted the rest of my or that next chapter to be for me from a career perspective and i I ended up moving to Washington, D.C. And, and lobbying for a national trade association in the financial services and insurance industry before, five years later, joining the energy industry. So that's that's kind of like the full circle yeah. <laughs> from beginning to now. Well, it sounds like an incredible journey. I mean, 
that whole family dynamic must have been amazing and and such a learning curve from such a early age and definitely I'm sure set you up for everything that was to come after that I mean being able to deal with different groups and different people and personalities is so central to leadership to that whole government race that you went through so I'm sure really molded you as, as a person and it's awesome to hear so You've now mentioned come full circle to the energy industry, but that was fairly recently. So I was wondering if there was anything in particular that drew you to the sector. It wasn't anything, any one thing in particular, but it was the perfect timing. So I was introduced to the energy industry, or at least I start paying attention to it rather, through public utility deregulation in the late 1990s and early 2000s. In Ohio, uh, we were, uh, from a policymaking perspective, we were trying to transition from coal, the burning of coal, to more uh, alternative uh, uses of energy, be that solar wind in particular in Ohio. And that movement in the late 1990s of busting up the uh, public utilities and making sure that we had clean energy in the state was my introduction to the energy industry from a policymaking perspective. It wasn't until I went on a little bit in my career as a lawyer where we began representing some of these alternative or renewable energy sources or companies who were who were manufacturers of these types of alternative uh, energy sources. And that's where I began to get my feet wet a little bit. So I had always had a little bit of a understanding of the importance of energy. But I, at that early stage in my career uh, from a legal, as, as a lawyer, I wasn't running toward <laughs> jumping into it. So it wasn't anything in particular, but when I was minding my own business in Washington, DC, doing a great job lobbying for the insurance industry on property and casualty insurance issues, and particularly at the state level in Maryland and Georgia and the Carolinas and Delaware, I had begun to look for opportunities to become part of a leadership team. And I knew that at my current organization, that was going to be a long time <laughs> before that happened, right? So I began to look outward and an opportunity actually presented itself to me. A, a recruiter reached out to me on LinkedIn and asked me if I would consider a general counsel position in the energy industry, particularly representing the fossil fuel industry here in California. And initially, I shot it down. I said, look, I don't know anything about California. I don't know anything about California politics. And I don't know anything about the fossil fuel industry, <laughs> right? So I reflected on it a bit. And then I took a step back and talked with some people in my circle. And they said, but it's a general counsel position. <laughs> so uh, as a lawyer, there are several dream jobs. You're either a rainmaker for yourself or a rainmaker at a law firm, or you become a judge, or you become like a United States senator or something like that, right? Those are the dream jobs for a lawyer. Or you're a general counsel. And that spoke to me. Uh, I had an opportunity not only to be a general counsel, but I'll say if there was one thing in particular, it was the fact that this would be the first in-house counsel position at this trade association. And I had an opportunity to build something from the ground up. 
and I love building things. And if I had to nail one thing in the coffin, it was that. The fact that I had the opportunity to be first, not only the first in-house counsel, but as we know, the first African-American to actually ever work for this trade association in its 110 plus year history. So as I learned some of those different things, it began to get a little bit more attractive for me. And I was glad that that recruiter did not take my initial hesitation (laughs) as an opportunity to weave me out of the picture. Yeah. No, I mean, having your experience, that bit of experience you'd had in the industry, being in alternative sources of energy, then to suddenly be presented with this opportunity that's very focused on kind of upstream and those workers, it must have been a bit of a pivot for you and moving kind of across the country as well. I mean, such a big change, but I think your movement almost is in line with the industry that there's so much newness and change happening at the moment that it must be exciting. I mean, most people are excited to be in energy because we're building this new industry and you're able to build a position within an association that's at the center of this transition and move with it at the same time. I think that must be an amazing place to be. But kind of actually leads on to my next question. So as you said, you're working in a fuels association, you're a representative of fuels workers, but in California, so one of the most climate focused states, as far as I, in my little African knowledge of the states, can go. <laughs> but it's become clear, I mean, in all of our conversations, that the energy transition will require collaboration between all groups in the industry and particular between the industry and public actors. But I can imagine it must be quite an adversarial space to occupy. So I was just wondering if you could tell me a bit about your experience thus far in this position, both the challenges and the rewards in being that bridge between your members and the public or the state. Uh, Absolutely. You know, one of the one of the first questions after that recruiter played nice to get me to sit down with her, one of the first most difficult questions she asked me is something that you hit on. It was, okay, so you've represented consumers <laughs> on, on energy issues and you've represented alternative energy source manufacturers. How are you going to feel about representing the fossil fuel industry? Yeah, <laughs> so, it's almost a 180. <laughs> right, exactly, right? Uh, so when I had the opportunity to really understand who our members are and what they actually do, they're not just fossil fuel companies, they're energy companies. They provide energy to meet the demands of our society. And in some aspects that comes through fossil fuels, but it also comes through other alternative energy sources that some of our member companies are are producing and manufacturing, whether it's lithium batteries or or some other uh, new technology. So one of the challenges, or one, I'd say a suite of challenges, really comes to the people politics. And particularly here in the state of California, the state of California has been one of, if not the most progressive and aggressive jurisdiction as it relates to battling climate change from its policymaking, as well as you know, how, we, how, how we live daily, uh, locally and at the state level. And I don't think that that's going to change in the near future. I think it's only going to get more difficult and tougher. I say the people politics because I find it very interesting 
that as a government or as a society, you have an opportunity to bring various segments of the population together, corporate business, advocates, you know, policymakers, regulators, and legislators together to try to solve a problem that we at least fundamentally, most of us all agree that the problem exists. So if we start with the nucleus as to where we agree, the foundation, that a problem exists, the question becomes, how do we make sure that we don't exacerbate the problem? How do we put forward strategic, practical solutions to attack the problem and be able to be in a position where we can make energy accessible, safe, and affordable? If we can focus on those three things, making energy accessible, safe, and affordable for everybody, not just for those who can afford it, but specifically for those who can least afford it. And if we think about producing, transporting, and delivering energy from that perspective, I think that we will achieve uh, significant results. So some of the challenges I think are grounded in the people politics, the facade or the reputation to want to be tough on big business or on the fossil fuel industry and to make them pay for things that you believe in or individuals may believe in, rather than sitting down across the table and stop shouting over each other and really start talking to each other in order to solve some of the problems that we're facing in our society as it relates to the environment. So that I think is a challenge and a reward in itself. If we can accomplish that, and in some instances we have, there's been some policies where, whether it was cap and trade legislation here in California, air quality management issues and different things of that nature that the industry have supported and worked with government to push forward. Those are some of those little nuggets, those rewards that help build towards the framework of being able to have that opportunity to sit across the table from people who differ on not the issue, but just the method on how we address the problem. And if we can start having some dialogue with each other rather than talking over each other in order to try to attack the problem together, I think that we would definitely have some significant results. Yeah, I think that's really powerful. I mean, the way that you've put it there, I really like that we've all recognized there's a problem. It's just now finding the, the right solution. And I agree with you. I mean, energy access where I am is is such a big issue that it just can't be ignored. I mean, fossil fuels, oil and gas is not going to go away for a long time. So if we can find a way to work together, I think that's where we can be most fruitful. And that's where I say the collaboration, I think, is becoming so important. We've spoken about skills transfer, particularly in the context of Women's Energy Council, where we're trying to think now, as the industries move forward, how do we bring energy workers from the old world into this new world? And it's all about collaboration, trying to upskill, reskill, and use all of this knowledge and resources that we have in the fossil fuel industry to kind of make that movement as a collective. I think it's, it's an important conversation to have and must be, as you say, challenging, but rewarding at the same time once you can find those solutions, I'm sure. Yes, indeed. But now, I mean, moving towards kind of the crux of the, the Women's Energy Council podcast and talking about diversity and inclusion issues and 
throughout your career, I know a bit about your history. I know you've advocated for diversity and inclusion of historically marginalized groups. And given that experience and your own experience as part of a minority in US legal and energy industries, I wanted to ask, where do you think organizations most often go wrong in supporting their employees from marginalized groups? Yeah, so I do pride myself on being an unapologetic advocate for women and, and racial and ethnic minorities. And it's in my composition, but it's also in my upbringing. As you heard, you know, I, I had the blessing of going through some very tough times, but being led by two very strong, different women growing up. And three, if you add my sister in there, who's very strong in her own right, but my biological mother and my mother who took me in, my Jewish white foster mother who took my sister and I in, as well as even professionally, I want to say with the exception of maybe one or two jobs in my entire life, they have all been, uh, all of my supervisors have been women. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I want I, 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 you know, I'd have to dig through the archives. I was just thinking about that as you were asking the question. But uh, even, even, I mean, even some of my, you know, high school jobs. I think all of my supervisors were were, wow. were women. Rather, it was uh, being an usher at a, at a at a theater in Chicago or working at McDonald's. Like all of my, <laughs> all the way up to now, uh, and even now, I have the the, the privilege and, and fortune to work for a very dynamic, intelligent leader who happens to be female, who's been, you know, spent 30 plus years in the energy industry, my president and CEO, Catherine Reheis Boyd, and being able to learn from her about the energy industry and about, the, you know, just California in, 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 in and of itself has been truly remarkable. I think where most corporations fail is that they they force the marginalized employee or instead of employees to have the sole responsibility for figuring out their diversity, equity, and inclusion issues, right? So, and, and what I don't, what I mean by force, it's not like they threaten them with their job, but they create positions or they allow circumstances where, when diversity, equity, and inclusion issues come up, they point to that person to fix it, or they require, or ask, or push, or promote that person to be the spokesperson, that female or that African-American person or that Asian person or whoever, you know, name your historically marginalized individual within that corporation or someone from the LGBTQ community. When those issues come up, you point to that person and you want them to be the spokesperson and solve all the issues as if they can speak on behalf of an entire race of people or an entire gender of people. That's a big fail, <laughs> but that's the one particularly interesting thing that I found, or at least that I've talked with people about. I think another avenue where corporations fail, especially in the energy industry as well, is they fail to embrace having an authentic and inclusive environment holistically, right? They look at things to do from a program perspective or a project perspective. So let's, let's celebrate Pride Month. Okay, that's great. Let's celebrate Pride Month. But how about we just celebrate pride, period? Right. Let's celebrate Black History Month. And I'm, look, I'm not knocking any of those celebrations. Many people fought hard to try to get these types of recognitions of, of the different cultures of people that make up our corporate day of living or our, our corporate partnerships or people who work for these organizations. So uh, as well as to get government to recognize 
like we just seen with the Juneteenth holiday being recognized in the United States, recognizing at least the official end of slavery. So I, I, I am definitely for the celebrations and the programs, don't get me wrong. But what I would like to see is corporations take more of a holistic approach to focusing on an authentic, inclusive, and equitable environment from a diverse perspective, and not just focusing on a program or a celebratory month or a celebratory week or a celebratory day, but really looking at how their environment breeds an authentic, equitable, and inclusive one that ensures that everyone can show up, no matter who you are, no matter what position you hold in the organization, from the CEO all the way to the people who clean the office, uh, that everyone within the organization has the ability to show up and be their true authentic selves, regardless of what their hair looks like, regardless of you know their cultural garb that they choose to wear, they can truly be their authentic self in everything that they do within the organization. There's no carve out. This is just the way we do business. So I think instead of talking about just the fail, I offer that as a nugget as to what they can do in yeah. order to do better. Oh, absolutely. And I think, I mean, that's kind of why I asked the question. It sounds a bit of a strange phrasing to say, what, where do they go wrong? But I think only in identifying the problem area can we find those solutions. And as you say, once we realize, okay, inclusion is more than a project. It's more than an initiative. It's more than a day in the year or a month in the year. Then we know, okay, what is the solution to that? It's including these issues in our everyday thinking. So I think it's, yeah, I, I mean, those are really really valuable insights and it all comes down to that definition of inclusion what is inclusion it's making people feel like they can be exactly who they are at all times and raise their voices and have their voices be heard and I think it's so important um, as you say that we kind of include that in in everything that we do in a very holistic way it's also being you know practicing mindfulness right it's paying attention on purpose yeah. Like there is a there is an intentionality to how you function as a corporation, as a department, as a team, as a unit to where it becomes second nature. You look around the table and you see who's not there and you say, wait a minute, let's go get so and so and so and so and so and so. And let's make sure we have a, an inclusive environment here so that we can have some group thinking as to how we're going to address this issue, because I don't want it to be one dimensional. Because if I am the smartest person in the room, we have a problem. <laughs> That's just the way that I approach it. <laughs> if we're just going off what's in my head, we have a problem. We need more people at the table in order to help us get across the finish line. No, absolutely. I love that word. Intentionality is a wonderful word. I think that it is exactly that. Taking a choice, making a, a concerted effort to do this every day, because if it was just something that happened naturally. It would have happened already. That's what oh, it kind yeah. of, yeah. I, I mean, when people kind of say, oh, but, you know, give it time, give us, give us a few more years and we're moving towards that. Yeah, if it was going to happen naturally, it would have happened by, by itself already. So definitely yeah. that intentionality is so important. So it's been proven that these diverse teams have many benefits. I mean, the data is there. We know higher quality of teamwork, diversity of perspectives, creativity and problem solving are all 
outcomes of having a more diverse workforce. But how do you think that the energy sector in particular could benefit from improved diversity? So there was a 2020 Spencer Stewart energy sector snapshot that was put together, and it was done for the S&P 500 companies. The results of that snapshot showed that 23% of women are corporate directors in the S&P 500 in the energy sector. That was the lowest of all S&P sector companies. 13% racial ethnic minorities. Again, the lowest of all S&P 500 companies in total. In the energy sector, there was 40% of companies with three or more women on their corporate boards. Sounds good until you look at the total S&P 500, where it was 67%. (laughs) All right. Come over to the Fortune 500, where 20% of corporate directors are female and about 15% are racial or ethnic minorities. All these numbers, we know the stats, I don't need to go on. The reality of it is, is that there is a representation issue at the highest of highest levels in our corporate sector, as well as, or more specifically in the energy sector. And that problem, I believe, and and not just me, even the research shows that when there's a, a gender diverse board of directors and leadership within the organization, your organization is more likely to focus on environmental issues that impact our society. They are more prone to be focused on corporate social responsibility that encompasses not only environmental issues, but also corporate governance, as well as policies that impact the work-life balance of its employees and its workforce. So in thinking about why it's important for energy companies and other corporations to have and promote diversity within its organization, other than the research-driven results that McKinsey reports and other reports have demonstrated shows that companies are more profitable, that companies are more likely to gain and attract great talent. You have an opportunity here to really change the game, so to speak, in the energy sector. And you have a lot more opportunity to do so because the energy industry is lagging behind compared to other sectors. So given these statistics and given you know the research that you talked about and that I reference, what is the problem? You know, is it a mentoring issue? Is it a promotion issue? Is it an attract and retention issue? I'm really working to try to put my finger on it because it's very hard to understand. We know what the statistics show. We know that there could be enhanced improvements from an environmental decision, strategic decision-making if you incorporate diverse thinking and diversity within these organizations. So maybe it's also part of that transition that we talked about earlier, not only on the actual sources of energy, but also those who make the strategic decisions, how to and when and where to provide those sources. And hopefully, I think, or at least I hope rather, in in the future, things really do begin to change and that the things that we've seen over the past year or so kind of lend itself to allowing companies, particularly in the energy sector, to reset and look at opportunities where they can improve and enhance not only their representational diversity, but also their 
equitable and inclusive environments to where people from different historically marginalized groups want to stay. They want to come in, work for these organizations and truly make a difference. And that can only be done by the other part. It's great to have a diversity plan to go out and recruit the best and the brightest of women and racial ethnic minorities and anybody in order to help your organization achieve organizational goals. The hard part is making sure that you have an equitable and inclusive environment that keeps them there. <laughs> Retention is definitely such a such an important issue. I think that mid-career drop-off is is what everyone talks about in terms of historically disadvantaged groups in the industry. It's just you get to a certain point and it's that proverbial glass ceiling we we talk about all the time. And that's why we kind of want to have these conversations and why I'm passionate about this podcast. It just feels like we're talking about, we know the problem. We know that, that the issue is there. So to try and now kind of shift the focus to solutions and think, you know, how are we actually going to solve this problem? How are we going to build from the ground? Because as you say, as we've mentioned, the energy industry is pretty much the worst of the worst. Um, but Again, as I said earlier, I mean, I think there's so much opportunity for improvements. There is. It's it's there in the data. There's so much op- opportunity and it's such a great time at this transition period. And as you mentioned, after the last 18 months or so, we're building basically from the ground up again in a lot of instances. And that actually leads on to my next question. I was going to kind of chat about that and just comment on the fact that for a lot of companies, it was a setback and we're returning to normal. But I think there is an element of destruction in the last year and from that opportunity to rebuild. So I was wondering, how do you think companies might best utilize this position where we're at, where we're rebuilding almost from the ground up? How do you think that they can use this opportunity to build more equitable frameworks holistically, as we were talking about earlier, into their organizations from the foundation. Yeah. Well, my hope is that they don't waste this opportunity to reset or level set, for lack of a better term. I think that the one thing that companies or corporations, particularly in the energy sector, do not have to do at this particular point in time, or and I say do not because it's it's useless. You don't have to apologize for for not showing up in the past. The past is really not the focus from this perspective. The past is important as far as understanding the systemic issues that have plighted historically marginalized communities. But the apology for your lack of ability to show up to support historically marginalized communities or look for opportunities to promote, attract, and retain individuals from those groups in the past is somewhat irrelevant. The question becomes, how do you examine what you look like, who you are, what you do, and your why? The Simon Sinek component. Why? What is your why? Why do you do what you do? And it can't just be profit-driven, right? We know that. It can't just, it can't solely be about profits. Why is it that you do what you do? So if you if you if you take those elements and begin having those conversations and and, and reflection, what makes good leaders? What makes good leaders in my mind, or at least from my perspective, is the ability to reflect and course correct in real time in order to move the ball forward and achieve organizational goals. So if you put all that together, organizations now have the opportunity to do some very serious reflection 
as to who they are, what they do, and why they do it. And if they're looking around the table and who they are does not reflect society, they should throw out their playbook within their human resources plan and get a new one and start looking at how do you reflect the society that you serve? Who are your customers? Who can be your new targeted customers if you were more diverse? How can you expand your reach? How can you expand your services beyond your current or your products rather behind your, uh, beyond your current existence? So the opportunity to reflect, not rest on your laurels if for those who've done a good job or those who've done well, not rest on your laurels, but for those who haven't, simply have a moment of reflection and don't focus on what's on your website or what your branding materials say. That's important. Let the lawyers and, and the human resources folks work that out. But have an intentionality about who you're going to be, who you're going to become, and what new products and services you're going to now be able to offer because you are diversifying the people who, who, who manufacture or produce your deliverables. So I hope that corporate leaders, particularly in the energy sector, take this opportunity to reset, not be in a rush to return back to normal because normal isn't necessarily the way to go forward. There are some learning things that we should have taken from this pandemic. There's some learning moments and things that I hope grow, go with us. Let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater in this, you know, this mental construct to get back to the way things were. No, we will never return to the way things were because we were only at that point in time because we had only experienced what we had experienced to that date. We now have new experiences with this global pandemic and we should, I hope, have learned how to operate just a little bit more different and a little bit more equitable and a little bit more inclusive as we've been forced to this technological online world that you and I get an opportunity to speak on. But think about that. You're in South Africa. I'm in California. But for this pandemic, you and I probably would have never crossed paths. We now have an opportunity to think different and do different in order to become a better society. So if we begin looking at, reflecting rather, on who we are, what we do, and why we do it, and who we need to become in order to meet that why, to meet the need and the crux of that why, and really be a solid core within our, or have a solid core rather within our organization, that's gonna be the powerful moment. And that's where you will start to see, I believe, organizations transform or transcend. And that's going to take some time. And unfortunately, some people are going to retire, some people are going to get fired, and even worse, you know, move on to higher pastures. So you'll have new leadership ushering in. The question becomes, are we doing everything that we can do to prepare them to take the ranks and look at diversity, equity, and inclusion as a business imperative, not a moral thing to do? but it's part of who we are, what we do, and why we do it. I think, yeah, I mean, that's so key that not just rushing back to where we were and what we were doing before and just actually taking a moment to breathe, <laughs> to step back, to say, okay, 
we're coming out of the woods now. How are we going to use what we've learned to better our way forward and to transform from who we were before? And I think, as you say, I mean, you don't know where to go until you've looked at where you've come from. And really, I, I reflect is the best way to put it. Just reflect on everything that's happened and maybe where you were as the pandemic struck and where you are now and see where those differences lie, I think is really important as well. I mean, we've kind of done it at the Energy Council, looking at our products that we produced before, how we produced them and how that's changed in the, these 18 months. I think you only really know how you can utilize this change in this time when you see that difference. And that comes from that reflection. And also, as you say, I think preparedness for the next generation coming on is also so important. And that's where sponsorship and mentoring, I think, at the senior executive level, who most of our network are at that level, that's kind of where you guys can pay it forward and really use this time to prepare the future generation, the future female leaders for a similar situation in the future. But we've come to the final question. I think I really wanted to utilize this opportunity. As I said, hopefully no pressure for being our first male ally. But since you are, I thought, I mean, a common point raised by most of the women that we talk to is that we can have wonderful networking sessions, women to women, where we talk, we discuss. But in any power structure, unless you have the powerful working in alliance with the powerless, I don't think you're going to achieve as much as you could if there was that collaboration. So I thought just from your perspective, from the male perspective in the energy industry, could you give us some pointers as to what you think men can do to help improve gender equality in our industry? Yeah, so I, I think the word there is power sharing, right? And that speaks to equity. That speaks to the equity component. When we talk about diversity, equity, inclusion, I think the equity component also embraces power sharing. I think some of the things that would help from an allyship perspective that men can do are three things for me. Listen, learn, and take action. Let me go over those. So from a listening perspective, as a male, we can empathize, but we can never really understand. And that is very, very key for us to accept. We can empathize, but we never really, really can understand. But we have to use our empathy and try to understand as much as we possibly can from a female perspective of the challenges and difficulties and burdens that women go through, particularly in the workforce and in the corporate environment and listen to how we can provide an opportunity to help. It's really listening to that perspective that we lack so that we can then internalize it and think about the privilege that we hold as males and how we use that privilege in order to help promote or elevate. That speaks to the learning component. If you are actively listening, and hearing that female perspective, what you do with it is going to then determine what results you have. So hopefully as men, we're able to take that information that we've either asked, solicited, 
or just happen to close our mouth and open our ears because God gave us two ears, one mouth, right? <laughs> and listen to that perspective and actually begin to do things with it in a way that applies the, the things that we heard which takes us to the take action component. You see the methodical chain here. <laughs> the take action component is to position females for higher roles, mentoring them as far as development is concerned, or sponsoring them for leadership opportunities. Let me tell you a story. When I was building my team, we talked about me being the first in-house counsel earlier. When I was building my team, and I had an opportunity to bring on my first associate counsel, and by far out of the water, this one individual female, Jewish young lady, ended up rising to the cream of the crop to be the most premier associate attorney that I think that I was going to be able to hire. In fact, I was looking for her to be my replacement came down to two candidates. There was one African-American gentleman, actually it was three candidates. It was one Asian gentleman, one African-American gentleman, and, and one white female candidate. And she rose to the rankings out of, like, on every category, you know, from presentation to knowledge to experience. I mean, just blew it out of the water. And I, I brought her on. As we began to develop a relationship and I began to focus on training her to take my role. So my job as the general counsel was to hire her to one day become the general counsel. And that's how I viewed it. And I wasn't afraid of that. And that's part of the problem as men and going back to power sharing, right? Going back to the equity component. How do you sponsor people to replace you? How do you promote people to replace you? How do you hire and retain and train people to replace you? Because if you think about it from that perspective, rather than your own job security or your own selfish promotion or whatever the case may be, then you're going to miss some opportunities along the way. The good thing that my colleague taught me is that in meetings, some of our executives were turning to me to ask me questions about things that she was leading. Just because I was the general counsel, they would turn to me. And during our evaluation, our 360, she said, hey, Oyango, I would really appreciate if when members ask you questions about things that I'm leading, you toss it to me. Even if I don't know what I'm talking about, I want to be able to have that experience. And I said, you are 100% right. And shame on me for not catching it earlier. But from here on, I will make certain that that happens. And that was a powerful moment for me as a mentor and a sponsor to make sure that I was listening to what the needs were, that I began to learn or apply what was told to me and put it into action. And that's what I think we can do as allies. When women win, we win as a full society. The research shows that, as we talked about earlier, when women get into corporate leadership positions, we're more prone as organizations or more likely as organizations to focus on some of the key things that matter, including increasing and enhancing profits. It's not just about increasing and enhancing profits, but it's also about the corporate social responsibility elements. It's also about having an inclusive, authentic environment. Again, research shows that once women get, you know, rise to the ranks of these positions, those equitable policies that they put in place, 
usually helps racial and ethnic minorities as well as members of the LGBTQ communities also rise into the ranks of those positions. So when women win, we all win as a society. That's my final statement for you. <laughs> well, that's a wonderful final statement. I love it. I mean, I want that to be on my LinkedIn bio, I think. <laughs> but that's that's really powerful. I mean, breaking it down into those three steps, I think it's good to have almost a catch-all that you can remember. I think when you're sitting in the moment and you're thinking, oh my word, okay, this is now a situation. I know something's gone wrong. How do I address it? I listen, I learn, I take action. I think that's really breaks it down into a nice, easy way to think about it. And I mean, I had to learn that lesson myself as a white person, as a cisgender person, the fact that you actually will never truly understand. So that listening is so important. You really have to just take in and believe people. I mean, it sounds so ridiculous. Someone's telling you the truth that they know. Surely you should believe their experience because it's there. But you actually have, it again, comes back to the intentionality. You have to recognize I'm not a part of that group. I will never understand. So I need to actually take you at your word when you're telling me your experience. And, and that's so powerful. And I think it's definitely a lesson to be learned by any leader who kind of can't relate exactly to an employee. First of all, create that space for listening where people feel welcome and, and okay to come and talk to you. I mean, that's kind of the, the beginning point. But then believing them and saying, thank you for expressing that experience. And I believe you. I, I hear what you're saying. This is what I've learned and this is what I'm going to do in response. I think your example broke it down so well. So, I mean what I really want to achieve with this podcast is, is a solutions based approach. It's a practical way that we can break it down. Okay. We've recognized that this is the problem. How are we going to fix it now? So thank you. I mean, that, that really is a, a really powerful kind of catch all to, to use, I'm sure by any leader and particularly our male leaders listening. So Thank you so much. I've come back to the end of my questions. I really enjoyed this conversation. I think there's been some really interesting insights from your experiences. And I think a lot for leaders to, to take from the examples you've given and, and the advice you've given. So Ayango, thank you so much for being here and for chatting with me. It's been awesome talking to you. It's been an honor. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. Tune in next time to hear more valuable insights from others leading transformation in the energy industry.